I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and this is The Truth of the Matter. This is the podcast where we break down the policy issues of the day. Since the politicians are having their say, we will excuse them with respect and bring in the experts, many of them from CSIS, people who have been working these issues for years. No spin, no bombast, no finger pointing, just informed discussion. To get to the truth of the matter on the U.S. killing of Qasem Soleimani, head of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard, we'll talk with CSIS's Seth Jones. Dr. Jones holds the Harold Brown Chair, is director of the Transnational Threats Project, and is a senior advisor to the International Security Program at CSIS. Prior to joining CSIS, he was the Director of International Security and Defense Policy Center. He also served as a representative to the Commander U.S. Special Operations Command to Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations. Dr. Jones, let's talk about the latest news, and that is this Ukrainian aircraft, a passenger airliner was shot down, according to intelligence sources now, by the Iranians. By some accounts, it was an accidental shoot-down that one of the missiles they were firing hit it. But we do know, and, and there seems to be a broad agreement across intelligence and, and news agencies, including CBS News, that this aircraft was shot out of the sky. That's what it looks like right now. Uh, there was a, a Ukrainian airliner, which was a Boeing 737, that was shot down by an Iranian defense system, an SA-15, but it was likely done by mistake, meaning that the uh, Iranians did not intentionally uh, shoot down a civilian airliner, which means, uh, which raises questions about what did they think it was. What do you make of that? What parts of that do you question or or do you think we need more information on? Well, I think probably the biggest issue when we take a step back is that the tensions are significant, that there, in my view, is not a major de-escalation in the situation between the U.S. and Iran, that everybody's got their fingers on a trigger right now. And in this case, it was uh, the Iranians with a uh, surface-to-air missile, an SA-15, and that someone may have quickly done an assessment that there was an aircraft coming through Iranian airspace when many airlines had stopped flying over Iranian airspace misassessed what that airliner was, thinking it might be a fighter, and then engaged it and and shot it down. So I think that we need to uh, better understand what happened on the Iranian side. Uh, Let's just kind of work this uh, from today back and go through these events that have occurred in this extraordinary uh, several days we've all just gone through. Let's start with the president's address to the nation where he delivered a message, and now there seems to be considerable questioning about what exactly was that message. What, why do you think the president made this address, and, and what, was, what was his message? Well, I think one of the more interesting parts of the president's message was the first statement before he even started reading his transcript, which is that Iran will never get a nuclear weapon under his watch while he's president. And then he proceeded to explain why the U.S. killed Qasem Soleimani, and that the U.S. was now interested in peace and potentially talking to the Iranians. 
and even opened up avenues of cooperation on counterterrorism with the Iranian government. But I think the issue here was to try to step back from the brink. The problem is that is not the way the Iranians are seeing this right now. I want to I want to just inject one thing here. He made all of those so-called offers in the same speech that he said he was going to put sanctions on Iraq, a country we have spent trillions of dollars in building up. Now, he says, if they ask the United States forces to leave, he'll impose sanctions immediately. Right. Well, sanctions are the tool of this administration. And it was a clear threat to the Iraqi government that much like the North Koreans, much like the Iranians, that they will be a target of the U.S. if they don't do what he wants them to do. Andrew? Thank you, Bob. Seth, the Iranians have said that they will continue to take harsher revenge. What do you think that means? They also, at the same time, are saying that the missile strikes were not intended to kill anyone. So they're sending mixed messages. What do you think that all adds up to? Well, I think it's interesting to look at the uh, Iranian attack against two Saudi oil processing facilities in September of 2019. They targeted Abqaiq and Quraysh with land attack cruise missiles and unmanned air vehicles. Our satellite imagery assessment at CSIS of those attacks were that they were extremely precise, even the same locations on the different spheroids. So what that suggests is the Iranians do have some precision capability to target uh, locations. There is, and I've talked to U.S. officials about this, there are indications that the Iranians gave advance warning through Iraq uh, to the United States about its missile launches. If that ends up being true, another indication that they did not intend to kill American civilians. The general approach here would be, and Iran's general MO for operating, is not to operate directly against uh, foreign states. I think they needed to show their population that they were taking action and taking action directly, and they did a limited step. But their primary way of, uh, of conducting military strikes is through their proxy organizations. So asymmetric warfare. Asymmetric warfare through Lebanese Hezbollah, Kataib Hezbollah, the Houthis in Yemen, and other organizations like that that work with the Islamic Revolutionary Guards, Quds Force, the organization that was once run by Qasem Soleimani. That is almost certainly the way that they're now going to respond. And their reach isn't even just in the Middle East. Their reach is in Latin America and other places in the world, too. Is that right? Iranian-linked uh, proxies, as well as the RGC Quds Force, has conducted terrorist attacks in Latin America, in Argentina, in Africa, in Asia, and even uh, conducted plots and assassination attempts in uh, North America and Europe. So they have an extensive reach to hit back. And I, and I suspect that's what they're going to do next. Let me just go back to one thing you, you talked about when you were talking about the accuracy of their missiles in that attack on Saudi Arabia, where no one was injured, no one was killed, as far as I know. There's broad thought across the intelligence and the news community, as it were, that the Iranians may have fired those missiles into the ground just to make a show of force. You talk to people over at the Pentagon, and they they seem to infer that they're really not that good, that they they really couldn't do that. They didn't have that capability. You seem to be suggesting that they do. 
Well, I'm suggesting what we've seen both in Saudi Arabia with the strikes, as well as Iranian operations in Syria, is over the past two or three years, they have definitely improved their ability to use uh, missile systems, as well as uh, unmanned aerial vehicles to conduct kinetic strikes. And, and I think my conversations with senior Saudi, Israeli, and other officials uh, indicates that they have been they were extremely concerned about the implications of the September 2019 strikes in Saudi Arabia. And also the, the Iranians have worked very closely with the Houthis in Yemen to conduct some fairly precise strikes against Saudi Aramco facilities. Uh, in the in the country, southern parts of the country. So I think what this suggests to me is that if the Iranians had really wanted to kill Americans in Iraq, they would almost certainly have been able to do that. They have, and these were short range missiles too. You know, uh, when we were talking the other day, you said when I said. You know, this this kind of reminds me of leading up to World War One, where nobody seemed to really want. A war, but the roll, the wheels had started turning, and people just couldn't turn them off. And suddenly, we were involved in World War One. You said, "No, that's not entirely correct because uh, the Iranians don't want an all-out war because they know that it would be uh, just a total annihilation of their culture." I don't believe the Iranians want anything close to a conventional war. Their regular or conventional military is weak. Uh, their ground forces use U.S.-provided tanks from the 1960s and 70s. Some of their aircraft are also from the same era, the Shah era. Where they have put money and resources since the Iran-Iraq War is into the Islamic Revolutionary Guard's Quds Force to conduct asymmetric attacks and into the missile program. These are, in Iran's views, these are their comparative advantages. So a conventional war works to their much weaker side. So we should be on the alert and we should be uh, monitoring closely their activities in these other areas. I, I think our intelligence in terms of the next steps has got to be deeply focused on IRGC, Quds Force activities around the globe and their partner organizations, Lebanese Hezbollah, Kataib Hezbollah. These are organizations that have conducted attacks and killed Americans at Marine Barracks in Lebanon, the Kobar Towers in Saudi Arabia, and as the Israelis know, have been hit in places like Argentina. And what about the homeland? Should we be more alert to possible attacks well, about a decade ago, there was a – while I was in the U.S. government, there was a reasonable uh, assessment of a plot to kill the Saudi ambassador in Washington, D.C. Yes. that linked back to the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guards. That appeared to be uh, reliable information, although the timing wasn't entirely clear. So that does suggest that there has been an, an interest in conducting homeland attacks. But I think that would be very difficult to do and to pull off. It would be much easier for the Iranians to do this somewhere other than the U.S., particularly with everybody on such high alert right now. Seth, Sanam Vakil, the Iran scholar at Chatham House, wrote yesterday on Twitter. She said that she expects that more kinetic action and reaction between the United States and Iran is inevitable. That seemed pretty pretty right on to me. What do you think about that statement? And how can the United States get ready for such kinetic action and reaction? 
Well, I think if you look at the last, even the last year after the U.S. enacted crippling sanctions against the Iranians, uh, there has been a lot of activity, military activity. Uh, the Iranians have conducted sabotage operations against commercial ships off the coast of the United Arab Emirates. They've perpetrated attacks using limpet mines against Japanese and Norwegian tankers. They've shot down U.S. Global Hawk. The U.S. responded. The Israelis have conducted hundreds of strikes against Iranian-linked positions in Syria. Every time they fly into Syria and land there, the next thing that happens is the Israelis take whatever their position is out. Yeah, and they've hit, the Israelis have hit lots of Iranian targets in Syria. They've hit UAV uh, locations, command and control centers, radar, early warning uh, sites. They've hit missile and missile parts. So we see a lot of kinetic activity in this area. All of this suggests is, is that this will continue. What is different after the Qasem Soleimani attack, though, is now we have direct U.S.-Iranian kinetic activity. This was really the first time where the U.S. and Iran have uh, one side has killed government official from the other. And it was us first. In this case, it was us first. Yeah. I mean, there was a contractor, there was a U.S. contractor that was killed. Some debate about, uh, about whether it was Iranian government or partner force. And assuming it was a partner force, this would be the first direct action by one side, and this was the U.S. escalating then. Escalating because this is a senior official of huge magnitude compared to any contractor. This was the most important Iranian military official, a close friend of the Iranian supreme leader and the architect of Iran's expansion by proxy across the Middle East. This is as if they would assassinate uh, a senior U.S. official like a joint chief of staff or a cabinet official. Yeah. I mean, the, the U.S. doesn't quite have the equivalent because it is at its core a large conventional power. But yes, probably, I mean, he was the most important military figure. So that may be a good comparison. To me, one of the most interesting parts of all of this has been the rather muted response from our allies. And in Europe, Boris Johnson in the beginning refused to uh, authorize or, or agree with the president on uh, the killing of Soleimani. I noticed that uh, the Saudis have been fairly uh, quiet and have urged restraint, actually. And now we come along with Erdogan, who says no one has the right to put our region into a ring of fire. Well, and there are also others. The uh, One of the first uh, steps from the Russian president, uh, Vladimir Putin, was to actually travel to the region, uh, I think is an indication, at least from his perspective, that their role in the Middle East uh, continues to, to grow. Um, the Israelis certainly were supportive publicly of the strike. Netanyahu went out. But I think the challenge, particularly between the United States and Europe, is that there is not an agreed upon framework and strategy for how to move forward. The Europeans have have been pushing even recently for a return to political dialogue uh, and to salvage some aspects of the nuclear deal. But the, the U.S. and the Europeans are far apart right now. And I think that that silence is indicative that there is no long-term agreement on where this is going. Well, we saw uh, the president in, in one part of that speech afterward that kind of surprised me when he called on NATO to improve uh, and enlarge its uh, role in the region. Uh, would you think that, that NATO has 
Any idea of doing that? Well, here's the problem. I mean, at the core of the issue right now is a need for some kind of political dialogue to de-escalate. NATO is a military organization. The dialogue involved diplomats uh, from the U.S., from Russia, from Germany, France, and the U.K., uh, and support from the Chinese. And so at the end of the day, if you're to get an off-ramp here, it has to be political dialogue. NATO doesn't give you that. NATO is a military alliance. And that's my concern with trying to elevate NATO to this is what's needed is political dialogue not more military. Who do you think benefited most from this whole situation? And I bring that up because Mike Morrell, the CBS News consultant, who was the deputy director of the CIA, said, number one, the beneficiary uh, was Iran. He said, number two, ISIS. And he said, number three, Putin. Well, I I think without a doubt, in my view, the first uh, beneficiary agreeing with Mike is is the Iranian regime. Uh, By our estimates between 2018 and late 2019, there were over 4,200 protests in Iran against the government. When you add on to that the anti-Iranian protests in Lebanon, as well as Iraq, and then in late November... There were huge protests against the Iranian regime in Iran, sort of putting a, a, an exclamation point at where Iran sat just a few weeks ago. Now we see over a million people in the streets supporting the regime. This has been, in one sense, is this is a saving grace for an Iranian regime uh, that whose economy is at negative 10 percent, real, G, uh, real GDP inflation rates are up at 40 percent, but now there's a rally around the flag effect in the country. So without a doubt, I think the first uh, beneficiary is Tehran. And what about Putin? Well, I think, you know, Putin has been increasing uh, the role of Russia in the region. In 2014, the Russians seized uh, Crimea to get additional access to the Black Sea. Uh, They have expanded their role in Syria. The Russians now have um, power projection out of the naval base at Tartuz and the air base at Latakia. uh, And they are a predominant military, diplomatic, and intelligence power in the region. So I think Putin's trip to the Middle East after the U.S. assassination of Qasem Soleimani, I think, is an effort to increase Russian power and influence in the region. So I think in that sense, they have probably benefited. Seth, President Trump asking um, for help from NATO might have been the first time in his presidency that he actually called on allies to collaborate on an issue of foreign policy and national security. Here at home, though, Democrats and some Republicans are calling for Congress to intervene and discuss war powers. Some Republicans are saying this could hurt our ability to actually deal with the enemy. What do you make of all the turmoil here at home over this? Well, I mean, clearly this issue is caught up in a broader polarized political arena in the United States. I mean, look, this war power discussion comes up every time any president uses force. So I think in that sense, It's not surprising. I don't think we're going to resolve a debate between Capitol Hill and the executive branch over the use of force, particularly in a strike like this. I think what is 
What is more problematic, though, is that a successful long-term plan to contain Iran, which should be an important objective of the United States, and it's not just a military one. It's diplomatic, it's economic, and it's also an informational one, the way we dealt with the Soviets during the Cold War. It's an information campaign, radio stations and uh, television broadcasts and covert uh, operations. Is It's going to be really hard to put together a long-term strategy to contain Iran without some bipartisan support. Well, well, you did a study, uh, a recent study on leadership and kind of presented some options. Give us a little summary of that. Where do you think we ought to head now? Yeah, your new report that we released this week is called Containing Iran. And it's, it's about understanding Iran's power and exploiting its vulnerabilities. You have some really concrete recommendations in there. Uh, tell us more. Well, one of the recommendations sort of goes back to the way even some Republican administrations had dealt with adversaries, uh, the way Reagan dealt with the Soviets during the Cold War, where across the board in areas of information, so the U.S. Information Agency, covert action, uh, the role of special operations forces, and then just broader public diplomacy, Reagan increased resources he conceptualized the struggle with the Soviet Union as one between democracy, freedom of speech, free market capitalism, and authoritarianism, closed systems, and no access to uh, any kind of freedom of speech. You could make a very similar argument that we are dealing with a regime in Tehran that is diametrically opposed to who we are and how we were created in the United States. And that most Iranians, and we've seen this in demonstrations, have wanted greater access to the internet. It's closed. We call it a halal internet. They want less of a role of the uh, clerics, of the Shia leadership, of the theocracy. And they, they broadly want more political freedoms. This strongly suggests that we've got a lot of opportunities to undermine the regime and its stranglehold on the economy and on freedom of speech. Create our own narrative. Yeah, with media programs. They want access to American movies, music. And at the same time, and, and this is the great irony here, our State Department budget is comparatively tiny compared to our U.S. Department of Defense budget. And it's been slashed. So I think in that sense, we've got our priorities wrong. So Reagan understood the power of great storytelling. He knew that part of dealing with the Soviet Union in the Cold War, that we needed the power of our ideas to succeed. You're saying we need that here in dealing with Iran. I think that is one area. I mean, there clearly is a role for military force. There's a role for sanctions. Uh, there's a role for diplomacy. But this is one area where I think we we have succeeded in the past against authoritarian regimes. We have a comparative advantage here because people generally want this. And we have completely decimated most of these most of the funding for these kinds of activities and even the organizational structures to do it. Exactly. I mean, uh, give us a comparison. What was our our plan and our strategy, let's say, during the height of the Cold War? We, I know we had the U.S. Information Agency. We had various uh, ways to get the message. We had a doubling of the budget for Radio Free Europe uh, during the early 1980s and Radio Liberty uh, massive increases in Voice of America and the USA uh, Information Agency, and we significantly increased the covert action um, uh, funding for uh, 
political programs, that is like support to solidarity in Poland, which was not military aid, uh, but which was uh, the support of an opposition movement. So we funded political opposition movements and funded information campaigns, doubling the budget in about six years. We've gone the other direction now. Seth, last question. As you indicated, President Trump started his remarks yesterday with the statement that Iran, under his watch, would not be allowed to get a nuclear weapon. Where does this whole scenario leave us with Iran on the nuclear front? Well, I think there are probably at least two different pathways. Uh, first is Iran has ended its commitments that it made to limit uranium enrichment, production, research, and expansion. And if it continues in this direction, it may move towards building nuclear capabilities, nuclear weapons capabilities, much like North Korea did. And if that's the case, then the way to stop it is through military uh, strikes, U.S. or Israeli. Some form of strike, whether it's cyber or, whether, or, or it's some kind right. of kinetic missile strike. Right. Operation Olympic Games was the cyber operation or Stuxnet to uh, try to set back the Iranian nuclear program. There could also be, and they'd be difficult, you could strike targets, components of the nuclear facility, some of which are actually buried deep underground. The second pathway is that there is an effort either under the Trump administration or by whoever wins on the Democratic side, the elections in November of 2020, to sit down at the negotiating table and redo some kind of JCPOA. It's either a political dialogue or it's a military strike. And that's really your only way to stop Iran from getting nuclear And the weapons. Iranians have said that they're willing to renegotiate if the United States is willing to go back into some form of negotiation on the deal. That's true. The challenge that the U.S. faces at the moment is, at least publicly, it is stated that in addition to limiting Iran's nuclear weapons capability, it also wants to limit its support to proxy organizations and terrorist groups, uh, hand back all of its hostages, uh, eliminate or significantly weaken its missile program. There are a whole range of things which it's hard to believe Iran, particularly after the Qasem Soleimani strike, is going to do. Seth Jones, thank you so much for helping us get to the truth of the matter on this ever-changing story. We'll stay tuned. I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 